So announcements are done. Uh, if you're visiting today, we're doing something different than what we normally do. Usually, I give a fiery three-point sermon and then an altar call, and I'm not doing that today. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but Bobby, come back up here for a second, if you don't mind. Sorry, I'm putting you on the spot here. Um, for those who don't know, Bobby, we're, we're an elder, elder-led congregation. We've been led uh, for many years now with three elders, myself and Adrian Barajas and Bobby. And Bobby was one of the first elders uh, that helped lead this congregation. And um, I think it's fitting that Bill is here as well. He's one of the founder first elders of this congregation. But um, Bobby, uh, for various reasons, can you come a little bit closer? You're too far away from me. Um, I thought I was going to get some of that fiery sermon. For various, for various reasons, mainly, mainly time and health and, and just being able to focus more on, on him and Karen and give time and attention to their needs, health needs. Um, he's decided to resign as an elder of our congregation. And it's really sad for me because I think he does an excellent job. And yeah. But I just wanted to honor him. If you guys just see him today, just thank him. If, if it wasn't for him and his sacrifice and helping lead the congregation, and hours spent praying for, counseling people, or helping make decisions, coming to meetings, and this and that, um, Bobby has spent and, and Karen has spent. So they, they were a team in this for sure. So just thank him, hug him, and, and tell him how much you appreciate all that he has done for the congregation. And, and um, yeah, we just want to pray for him right now, if that's okay, and just, uh, and just pray God's blessing over him and Karen. Father, just lift up our brother Bobby right now. I thank you so much for the sacrifices that he has made for this congregation and leading it. Father, we just pray a blessing be upon him and Karen and their home. Father, that you would restore health, that you would just... Uh, bond them together closer as a couple and just renew their marriage father and just make it joyful and father thank you so much for for the example that he and karen have set for all of us we thank you and praise you so much for what you're going to do and continue to do through our congregation in yeshua's name amen, amen. thank you sir Love you. <laughs> he says he's going to get me i was thinking about getting karen up here but I thought she would probably she would hit me thank you guys so much um, well, let me start by saying this is different. We're going to do this is the part two of Q&A. The last week was part one and about once a year or so. I stop where we're at and I just do Q&A and I take pre uh, pre-submitted questions that you guys have emailed to me throughout the year or just here in the past couple of weeks. And I take time and just answer some of those questions, time permitting. We're going to stop about 1230. But let me start by saying that I get a ton of questions every year. And there's just no way to go through all of them. Uh, I love that you guys are inquisitive and you're searching for answers to life, life's hard questions. I love that Dothan Messianic Fellowship as a congregation uh, is seeking after the heart of God through questions. Uh, many churches you go to and congregations you go to, questions are not celebrated and they're not welcomed. And I welcome those as much as and, and you just have to bear with me if my, my most frequent answer is I don't know. But I do the best I can sometimes. So how do I pick which questions I answer in these time to Q&A, public Q&A? Well, number one, they tend to be questions which, to which I have an answer, right? <laughs> I'm not going to get up here and I have this question, this amazing question, and be like, I don't know. That would be uh, anticlimactic. And it, I, I wouldn't look very smart either. Uh, number two, they tend to be questions that are relevant to what's going on in the world around us. And number three, they tend to be practical questions that an answer to which will edify us as a congregation, our families, and our marriages, and our walk with Messiah. If I did not get to your question in this year, I'm very sorry. Keep asking. 
keep searching and keep desiring to scratch for truth and clarity out of this ever-confusing world. And I'm always around if you have questions. You know, it doesn't mean that you can't ask me questions and I can't give you an answer because it's not a formal Q&A. But uh, we have some questions on the docket today. Are they up there? Yeah, big questions. Wow. And we got a, we got a lot of ground covered. What's the deal with the Trinity? Is it biblical? And where do we see it in the Bible? Where do we see it as a, oh, I'm sorry. Where do we as a congregation stand with this topic? That's not a small topic, right? <laughs> Number two, I've heard in the ancient Paleo-Hebrew language that every letter is a picture or hieroglyph. And each word, here we go. I'll move this up there for you. And each word... Uh, is made of the composition of these letters and studying Paleo-Hebrew, like ancient, ancient Hebrew, the spelling of these words can bring a lot more depth to one's study of the Bible. Is this true? And is there anything to this? Have anybody ever heard this before? Okay, good. A lot, a lot. Excellent. Number three, in light of the recent attacks on Israel and a rise in anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism, I've heard numbers about 400% its increase since October the 7th of this year, since the attacks of Hamas, uh, does DMF have a plan of action for an act, act something like a, like a shooter or an attack? Additionally, are we allowed to legally carry our own firearms to Shabbat service? Very good question I got this week. If I had to pick only one part of the Bible from which to read and to teach and conduct my life, which would it be, the New Testament or the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, it's called sometimes? Additionally, if you could only choose one book of the Bible to have with you the rest of your life, which would it be? Wow, big questions, right? You guys ready to jump in here? I hope uh, and pray I do a good job and be a good steward of these questions. But let's take question number one up there. What's the deal with the Trinity? Okay, everybody put your listening caps on here. We're going to go deep and do a, do a deep biblical study here on the Trinity. I'm going to answer all your questions about it, I'm sure. There's a story I like to tell about the Trinity where there was this atheist Jewish family. They were living in a very wealthy part of the city of Chicago. I just picked that arbitrarily because the story is probably not true. Just bubble busted, right? They were living in a very wealthy part of Chicago. And this atheist Jewish father wanted his son to go to the most prestigious school in their neighborhood because he wanted him to follow in his footsteps and become a lawyer or a doctor. So the only school available that was prestigious and was there was the local Catholic school. They were at a very rigorous academic curriculum, very stringent acceptance process, and they, would, they were very renowned in the area and would set up their graduates to be able to go on to law or medical school with ease. So naturally, he, um, and, and, and hesitantly, he and the secular Jewish father enrolls his son in this Jewish school, I'm sorry, in this Catholic school. After the first day of school, he picks up his son and he says, how was it, son? How, how did it go today? What did you learn? And the uh, young Lad sitting in the back seat says, Father, I learned that there is uh, Father God, there is the Holy Virgin Mary, and there is the Son, Jesus Christ. And the secular atheist father turns around visibly angry and shakes his finger at his son and says, you know that there is only one God in this world. Now, obviously, this is a very sensitive topic within Judaism, so much so that the atheist father would, uh, would uh, scoff at this idea, right? But the Trinity is one of the most debated and highly sensitive topics inside Christianity and between Christianity and Judaism. The concept of the Trinity is one of, if not the biggest, we could say, turnoffs to religious Jews from accepting the gospel. 
If I were to design a religion, let's say, with the intent of persuading Jews to come to faith and belief in Yeshua of Nazareth as their Messiah, I would probably start with dismantling the notion that Yeshua is the Son of God, that he is divine, and that God is equally one and three at the same time. We would actually be very effective in our efforts to to proselytize the Jewish people. But alas, any religion or faith that is created with the intent to bring others into it is not a religion founded upon truth. That is what we call sales. The very essence of sales is to get someone's mind, the, the client's mind, the buyer's mind off of the cost. Whereas the very first questions we ask new believers coming into the faith is rather, hey, slow down, pump the brakes. Have you counted the cost? To approach the concept of the Trinity, we must first acknowledge that the word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible. I looked, I couldn't find it. At the same time, however, that doesn't disqualify it from being biblical. The word Trinity is the English equivalent, the anglicized version of the Latin word Trinitas, which was coined by the early Christian writer Tertullian. The word, which etymologically means something like the tripleness, is used to refer collectively to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And no part of the Bible was originally written in Latin, so hence the word Trinitas is not found in our Bibles. That is where the non-biblical aspects of this concept end, however. Sadly, in an attempt to appease the convictions of modern Judaisms, or because of deep hurt and mistrust from the church that you maybe were a part of at some point, we in the Messianic world often throw concepts of good biblical Christianity out with the bathwater, and sadly, so often, this is one of those doctrines. The concept of the Trinity is so present on the minds and ingrained within the beliefs of the earliest followers of Yeshua that you could give me the book of Luke alone and I could easily substantiate the concept and the understanding of the triunity of God that was both taught by Yeshua and echoed by the earliest disciples. In fact, it was the year-long study through the book of Acts and through the book of Luke that we conducted here at DMF that further solidified my certainty of the biblical origins of the Trinity more than any theological paper, article, college class, or sermon I've sat through. Luke is so determined to prove the personhood of the Holy Spirit and the divine nature of Yeshua that one could almost open to a random page in the Gospel of Luke or the book of Acts and find a reference to the unique and personal role of the Holy Spirit. Okay, I know what you're thinking. Show me the money. I mean the verse. Show me the verse. And I'll believe you. Now, I find it too easy to use any old verse from the Bible to substantiate the concept of the Trinity. It's almost too easy to find an individual verse which speaks to the personal and divine quality of the Holy Spirit or of God the Father or of Yeshua. Those are everywhere, both in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament, the Brit Chadashah. So, I decided to handicap myself by using only verses that are from the New Testament and speak to all three in the same verse. Of those, I found 20, and then I stopped looking. For the sake of time, I'll just read five or eight of them with your, uh, with your permission. And I'll make the, the complete list of the 20 available to you if you have a desire to see that. But Matthew 3.16, if you want to write these down, you can. 
After being baptized, Yeshua came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open and he saw the spirit of God descending on him as a dove, lighting on him as a dove. Matthew 12, 28. But if I, Yeshua, cast out demons through the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Again, and these are all three being mentioned in the same verse. Luke 3, 22. And the Holy Spirit descended upon Yeshua in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven and saying, you are my, the Father, beloved Son. In you, in you, I am well pleased. John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in Yeshua's name, my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I said to you. John 15, 26. When the helper, the Holy Spirit comes, whom Yeshua, I, he says in the verse, when I will, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father and he, notice he's using a personal pronoun, will, he will testify about me. Let's do a couple more. Acts 1, 4. Gathering them together, Yeshua commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard about me. What is that? that he was promising the Holy Spirit. Let's do one more. Acts 2.33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God the Father, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Yeshua was, has poured forth this which you have both seen and hear. Acts 10.38. You know that Jesus of Nazareth, how you, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went along doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So you hear the uniqueness and the, the triunity of those three persons of the Godhead. So with all that in mind, and I just read uh, like not even half of the 20 that I found. And again, I just stopped counting at 20. I, kept, I stopped looking at 20. And those 20 verses are just the, the three Father, God, God uh, Son, and Holy Spirit all in the same verse. So if I expand my search even more, I'm going to find more than 20 verses where those three are mentioned in the same verse. If I expand it even more than that, I'm going to find a lot of verses, especially in Luke in the book of Acts, where there is a, a, a personal pronoun ascribed to the Holy Spirit and a unique role ascribed to the Holy Spirit by the author of those books. So with all that in mind, let's be careful that we don't trash a very biblical concept sim simply because we've been hurt by a former church and we're skeptical of that. Or we want to appease Judaism or just get caught up in a wrong teaching available to us on the internet. I, I'm convinced that, that you cannot come to the conclusion of something other than the biblical triunity of God were it not for someone teaching you something via the internet or in person. You cannot plainly read the word of God, especially the New Testament, and come away with a different notion that that's all you're ingesting. I'm convinced of that. So when someone comes to me with something other, I have to ask, well, where did you get that from? You didn't get it from the Bible. So let's be the noble Bereans, right, that are, that are praised. Let's test everything and hold on to that which is good. Now, the second part of the question was, where are we at with that officially as a congregation? Well, I'll just quote, I'll just quote the statement of faith that we have that's available to you on our website. As far as a congregation, we say in section two of our statement of faith that we affirm the Shema, which says, Hear, O Israel. We prayed that a minute ago. The Lord our God, the Lord is Echad, one. Deuteronomy 6, 4, right? 
This Hebrew word for echad implies compound unity, just like when it says in Genesis chapter 2. A man should leave his father and his mother and join to his wife, and the two will become echad. This Hebrew word echad, it implies unity. But God is one, but man has manifested himself in three separate distinct persons, referring to himself in plural terms in the Hebrew text. Hence, we, Dothan Messianic Fellowship, believe that God is a tri-unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is the creator of all things. He is infinite and perfect, eternally existing in three equal persons, and each possessing the nature and the perfections of deity, as well as the characteristics of personality. And then we go on to quote in the, in the section two of our statement of faith. We have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine references you can look up and, and study there for yourself. And that's available on our website, DothanMessianicFellowship.com as a PDF file. You can, you can download it. So the question is, Gabe, you're, you know, you're sitting here today and, and you don't agree with me, right? Am I allowed to attend Dothan Messianic Fellowship? That's a big question, right? You know, I disagree with you. Does that make me like, do I have to be ostracized or this or that? Yes, you do. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yes, of course, you are welcome to attend here. Stay here as long as you can, come as often as you can, and learn why you are wrong. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but no, I would say that your attendance, that is not a prerequisite for your attendance. I, I tell people as long as an atheist is respectful and safe, that they are welcome as often and as frequent as they want to come and sit in these chairs. Now, if they are here year in and year out and they never come to the saving knowledge of Messiah, then that speaks more to my inability to, to convey the message of the gospel than their, their heart is hard. But um, we would pray, obviously, the Holy Spirit would soften their heart to that. But yeah, absolutely. Now, I would, I would say that this, this belief and agreeing with this belief is a prerequisite for for serving as a leadership role at our congregation. But it's not a prerequisite for attendance and not a point of disfellowship. That being said, if you are certain in your erroneous convictions and feel the need to proselytize others to your cause, then yeah, we may get into some principles, office kind of waters. But I always say, the truth will defend itself. It will reveal itself for those who are honestly and objectively seeking it out. All I have to do is pray the Holy Spirit would speak conviction, the person of the Holy Spirit would speak conviction into your life on that topic, and then he might surprise you in doing so. So I'll end this answer with a quote from the renowned John Wesley. He says, bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and I'll show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. So that ends question number one. Let's move on to question number two. How are we doing? Everybody awake? Good. Okay. Question number two. I've got some uh, slides up here. I've heard that the ancient Paleo-Hebrew language, that in the ancient Paleo-Hebrew language, every letter is a picture or a hieroglyph, and each word is made of the composition of these letters, and studying the Paleo-Hebrew spelling of each word can bring a lot more depth to one's study of the Bible. Is this true? Is there anything to this? Well, in order to understand, there's a lot of people in the room that have no idea what I'm talking about when I say Paleo-Hebrew. Let me explain a little bit. This is kind of what we look at when we see Hebrew today. This is from the Aleppo Codex. This is, a, this is a, a very, very old document. I've seen this with my own eyes in the shrine of the book in Jerusalem. Um, it's the crown jewel of the, of the Masoretic text. Um, you can see it's got a lot going on here. This is, uh, you know, the, the, the 
Hebrew block script that was kind of borrowed and adapted from the Aramaic script. It's got uh, Nikud, which are vowel points under it. And this is the oldest complete, if I'm not mistaken, the oldest complete uh, vocalized or, or um, complete Hebrew, Hebrew Bible that has the Nikud, the vowels in it. And you can, if you're one of my Hebrew scholars in the room, you can see this is Achare uh, Mot Moshe. Achare Mot Moshe. So after the death of Moses, this is the, the beginning of the Torah portion, uh, Achare Mot. So uh, this is describing what's going on here. And you can see here's the Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey, the four-letter name of God right there. And uh, so it's a really important text. But that's what we look at. If you look, open up your Siddur, if you look at the slides when we're doing the prayers, that's what Hebrew looks like today. But is that what Hebrew looked like a thousand years ago or two thousand years or three thousand years ago? The answer is no, it, it didn't look like this. That would be nice. Um, it actually looked more like hieroglyphic script. You can see this is like a, a paleo, what sometimes they call proto-Canaanite Hebrew right here. And you see these are the, these are the Aleph through the Tav up there. And then these are the paleo symbols which they used to look like. So yeah, there is a grain of truth to that aspect that there was hieroglyphic components to every, uh, every Hebrew letter. And you can see the evolution as the Aleph right here, which was originally a picture of like an ox head, it morphed over time and it simplified over time and eventually it kind of turned. And now it's like this, what we see today, an Aleph. And if you go to Israel today, you'll actually see cursive Aleph, which I can't read cursive Hebrew. It's really confusing to me, but you know, this is what it looks like today. And in, in a lot of, a lot of like, you get a newspaper in Israel, it's gonna look like this block script right here. So the theory goes, can we take Hebrew words from the Hebrew Bible and then overlay on top of them these ancient pictures and get some kind of deep mystical meaning from them? So what I wanted to do today was test that. You guys wanna test it real quick with me? And let's take a couple words here. Um, now, I think I've got another, uh, no I don't. Let me, let me go through this real fast before we test it. This is interesting to me because these are um, coins that were minted in the 60s AD. They were minted by Jewish rebels who started to mint their own money under uh, a, a rebellious act under the Roman uh, occupation at the time. And these are half shekel coins made of pure silver. But what's interesting, anybody see anything interesting about these coins that they started minting in the 60s AD? You've got the Paleo-Hebrew on it. So it's interesting that these Jewish um, uh, revolutionaries, we could call them, these rebels, were trying to get back to the Paleo, at least some form of the Paleo script on these. And these things say like, um, they say like a half shekel on them, and then it has the, has the year, like first year and second year. Um, there's some examples of coins that they have found in the land of Israel. These are pomegranates. And this is maybe the labor that was in the Holy Temple. But they don't use the, the Hebrew that was common at that time, which is very abnormal. They use the ancient Hebrew. Also in the Dead Sea Scrolls, for instance, I know you guys can't really see that very well, but this is a copy of Leviticus chapter 23 that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls in the caves of Qumran. This parchment that was found, at least part of Leviticus 23, was entirely written in this ancient Hebrew script. Isn't that interesting? So this is a, either a really, really old document or someone was trying to go back and kind of convert some of the Leviticus chapter 23 into the ancient Hebrew script. It's really interesting. And then here we find from the Dead Sea Scrolls as well, a portion of the book of Psalms where you have a mixture going on. You have the Mishnaic era Hebrew 
and then you hit God's name right here, and it suddenly changes to the old Hebrew, the, the Paleo-Hebrew, and it goes back to the, the Aramaic script. So these scribes probably thought that we should not write God's holy name in an Aramaic script, but instead in the old Hebrew. So this would be like this Hebrew here on this, this scroll would have been the Hebrew maybe that like David would have read. Uh, or some of the judges, or definitely Moses, you know, this old, old Hebrew. So let's test it now. Let's go back to our chart here, and let's test a couple words. Um, I've got a couple words in my notes here, and I wrote them up here. It's really hard for me to do this because I don't know what this says, because it's the old, it's the old language. But let's take this word right here. Now, they say in ancient Paleo-Hebrew that the mim is chaos, chaos, Okay. So let's see if we can piece together what this means. Chaos or water. The, the kuf, this is an ancient paleo kuf, it represents like the sunrise or horizon. You can kind of see that. There's a picture of it. Sometimes you see it like this, horizon. And then this is an ancient dalit. Ancient dalit. See so uh, And it's supposed to be like a door, like a tent door. Okay, this is the letter Sheen, the ancient form of Sheen. It's supposed to be like uh, to consume or destroy. It's actually T. So let's see if we can get some meaning from this word here, and I'll tell you what the word is. Somebody just tell me, what do you, what, do you see a sentence in this? Huh? Chaos over the water, and then the door teeth. So let me put this together. Can you have to add in some uh, some other words in there to make it work? But we could say the water, the water and the sun, door destroy, door destroy. Like you see what I'm saying? Huh? Noah's Ark. Yeah. No. Good guess though. Something's being consumed, maybe. Yeah. But you see, you can't really get a good kind of narrative out of this word. This word is the word mikdash. What is the mikdash? It's the temple. It's the temple. It's a, it's a place of dwelling. Okay? It's, the, it's the place of kadosh. This is the root word kadosh, which means holiness. So it's the place of holiness. It's the place of God's dwelling. But you see how we can't really make sense of that using these, these old ancient words. What about, what about this one? We have the ancient Aleph, and we said that that's like an ox. Oh, it's a symbol of strength. Right? Or... or uh, like, I'm supposed to yeah, ox or strength, and so that's the ancient Aleph, and then this is like the ancient, did I put that right, bait, yeah, pretty much, bait, yeah, so you have Ab, or Av, what is, now this is supposed to be like a house, so you have strength in the house, so there, that kind of makes sense to me, that Av, when you say Abba, or Av in Hebrew, father, it literally, in pictographic form, you have the strength, or maybe the ox, depending on how much he eats, you know, I can see, of the house. And that's, I mean, the first person that breaks, if someone breaks in your home in the middle of the night, it isn't the husband waking up the wife and saying, hey, go out there and see what that noise is, right? It's the husband, right? At least he shouldn't. Okay, let's do another one. Let's do another one. So, so I have to come to the conclusion that more complex words like mikdash or other words like that, it doesn't really work very well. You can't really follow that through. It's not 100%. Really, really simple Hebrew words that are very old words and, and just basic words, it seems to work sometimes. Let's do, let's do another one. We have this one right here. 
This is an ancient Aleph, so we're going to put like an A, like an A. This is uh, what we say, ox, or strength, or leader. Strength. And then we have Mim. And what was the Mim supposed to be? Chaos. Chaos or water, yeah. Chaos. And then we have another ox, which is like another strength or leader. So what do you think this is talking about? I think it's still in strength. What do you think this is talking about? We have uh, leader, chaos, leader, or strength, chaos, strength. Two oxes, there's going to be chaos if they're Say it again? <laughs> Two oxes, there's going to be chaos, yeah. Especially those oxes get together, right? If they're unequally yoked. Okay, so what Hebrew word is spelled Aleph, Mim, Aleph? Huh? You guys are close. It's the word for mother, Ima. Ima. So here, we want to take a break and say, oh, you guys got it back there, so I'll high five at me. So, so is that true? Is, is the Ima, is the mother the strength of chaos of strength? No, I hope not. I hope not, right? We want Proverbs 31 women, right? So you see, it, it, it kind of jumps all over the place, and it's not really, um, it's not really consistent. It's not, it'd be really cool if it was. Um, there's, the, there's also the word uh, uh, bara, bara, which uh, we're going to do another ox here. Bara, which baits, resh, and then an olive. What does that mean? Created, to create, good. So we have, let's test it, house, bait, and then what was the, the resh, oh, the resh is supposed to be a head, and then an olive. So really simple word, really basic primitive word. It's like house, head, strength, or house, head, or ox. And it's hard to put it together. Like to create, the verb to create, you can't really get that Paleo-Hebrew to make it work and make sense. So you see, it's just not 100% consistent. And I've come to the conclusion that anyone who kind of tells you that it is 100% consistent, that you can take the Paleo-Hebrew and you can derive these deep mystical meanings from every Hebrew word in the Hebrew Bible, uh, they don't really know what they're talking about. That's kind of bunk, okay? Um, here's the crux of the issue, though. Is there like a hidden mystical meaning to the Hebrew words in the, in the Bible? Or is the plain reading of Scripture sufficient? Well, there, there's no real mystical meaning to the Hebrew words other than what we, the reader, ascribe to it. And I think that that's not a sound method of interpreting the Bible. It's important to understand that this is easy to market, though. And there's countless of teachers or Torah teachers that will attempt to sell you books or DVDs, which will uh, help you unlock uh, the hidden meaning that just does not exist. Right? God made it plain to us through his word. Now, there are different levels of interpretation. When we look at especially prophecy and stuff, and don't get me wrong, there is some very cryptic things in prophecy. But to, to try to really do a lot of biblical exegesis using a Paleo-Hebrew, is, uh, it's, it's going to leave you um, kind of high and dry. So, you know, Yeshua tells us to be wise as serpents, but as gentle as doves. And here's the thing, at the, at the heart of this, we have to be people who not only speak and make truth claims, absolute truth claims, we have to be able to defend them. Otherwise, our testimony is, is hurt, and God's name profaned. I'm going to take your question at the end. Can I do that? Is that okay? All right. Just hang on to it. Don't forget it. All right. Question number three. I hope I did a good job covering that one for you. Um, oh, there it is. There's the chart I was looking for. 
Question number three. In light of the recent attacks on Israel and the rise in anti-Semitism, does DMF, does our congregation, have a plan for, for, for an action for a shooter, like an active shooter? And additionally, are we allowed to carry, legally carry our own firearms to Shabbat service? So to answer the first part, yes, we do. Uh, Adrian is kind of our security czar. Uh, he's in the process of refining this plan, actually, and the key players in the plan. In the coming weeks, we'll actually be doing drills and training in this building using volunteers and actors. But don't worry, it's not going to be on Shabbat. <laughs> we wouldn't do that to you. So any, pertin any pertinent information regarding this plan and how you all are affected by it will be disseminated, okay? The plan will include positioning armed personnel at entrances before, during, and after service, developing evacuation routes and procedures, and further training of security personnel on their personal firearms to make them safer for you, yet less safe for the bad guy, right? More effective in neutralizing legitimate threats. So to be clear, we have never received any threats to our congregation, but we still wanna take precautionary measures, right? Just like we have fire extinguishers around the building. Now, with regards to the second part of the question, regards to carrying your own firearms in our building, Alabama is a constitutional carry state. Alabama Code 13A-11-7, which was codified in 2013, it declares that openly carrying a handgun in a holster or other secured manner is not in and of itself disorderly conduct. So open and concealed carry of a handgun in a place of worship is legal in the state of Alabama, unless the owners or the leadership of said place do not consent. So if you carry a firearm, if you're proficient with the operation and understand all the risks, please continue to do so. Just do it safely and do it legally. We reserve the right to ask you to no longer carry if we feel that you're being irresponsible with this right. Please balance accessibility of the firearm with safety of those around you and carry your firearm with a proper motivation. Remember, this is a place of worship. It's not show and tell, right? But thank you all for those who do legally carry. I appreciate you. Do it safely and legally. All right. We're moving right along. Say again. Yeah, be aware of state borders. Yeah. Um, I guess I don't have a slide for this one. I thought I did. I got a list of so, states that allows us stuff. Good. We're doing really good on time. I want to make sure I have lots of time for questions at the end here. You guys mind if I take a quick swig of water? <laughs> yes, you When you talk a lot, your throat dries out. All right. Question number four. Last, uh, I, was, I was actually asked to elaborate by a couple different people on a brief statement I made last Shabbat. The statement was something along these lines. If I had to pick one part of the Bible from which to read, teach, and conduct my life, which would it be? The New Testament or the Hebrew Bible? Additionally, if you can only choose one book of the Bible to have, this is a bonus question today, so freebie, with you the rest of your life, which would it be? Now, this question is akin to asking which half of a million dollar check do I want? Because one side validates the other. And without the other half, you have a partial check, right? It's an impossible choice to make. Which is better to breathe in or to breathe out? Yeah, which is better to breathe in or breathe out? But we could answer this question. We could take a stab at answering this question. We could answer this question by instead asking, what is the fullest or when in history has God offered the fullest and most detailed and profound revelation of his heart and his will? And in which part of our Bibles has that been recorded? 
the fullest and most profound revelation of God is what I want to chase after and preserved if forced with such an impossible and highly theoretical choice. We can answer that by looking at the Bible itself. In John's gospel, he describes Yeshua like this. In the beginning was the Logos, the word. And the Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. And he was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. And without him, not a thing was made that, was, that is here, that was made. In him was life. And the life that was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And the word, the Logos, it became. So the word that was with God, the Logos that was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. This is the same as God's glory, right? The glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, if you're a Jehovah's Witness in the room, that was highly offensive to you. <laughs> Your Bible, I forget the name of the Bible, the translation that you use, New World or something like that. It actually changes the translation to say, in the beginning was, um, was the word and the word was a God. Because they don't like Yeshua as being God, even though in most, if not all, the ancient Greek manuscripts of John 1, you have hologos, which is he, he was the word. He was, he was the word was God, not a God. It's a very specific description. But what does Paul have to say on this topic? If you have a Bible, go to Romans 10, verse 4. Romans 10, 4. And there's this Greek word that Paul uses in Romans 10.4. I'm going to transliterate it right here on the board for you. If you're a hunter in the room or you're a firearm enthusiast or anything like that, you have, you have, uh, or you like looking up at the night sky through this object that magnifies things and has these series of lenses, you know what this word means. Romans 10.4. Paul says, For Messiah... That is Yeshua, right? Yeshua is the telos of the Torah for righteousness to everyone who believes. So he's not the end. If your translation says the end, that's not the best translation. But rather, telos would be like when you're looking through something and you're looking out and you're saying, I, I want to see that closer. That he's saying, Paul is saying that Yeshua is that in the Torah. That the Torah was given to be that vehicle through which we could zoom in and wait for and anticipate the coming Messiah, the Advent Messiah. Now, Paul goes on in his letter to the believers in Philippi, saying that he counts everything. And now, right before this, he lists out all of the things, all his learning, his credentials. He says he compares it as a loss compared to the possession of the priceless privilege of knowing Messiah. Paul says, for his sake... I have lost everything and consider it all to be mere rubbish in order that I may gain Messiah. The writer of Hebrews continues this theme in his opening lines of the book. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed to be heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by his word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, 
have become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. If you have a Bible, go to 1 Peter 1 in verse 10. 1 Peter 1.10. Well, I take a drink of my chaos, chaos. You'll get that later. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, Peter says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they, 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 the prophets, searched and inquired carefully. They inquired what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Verse 12. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but serving you. In the, here's how they were serving you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels longed to look. Wow. What an opportunity that we live in, an era that we live in. Peter is saying that, guys, the prophets longed to see your day. Angels longed to see your day and to look into the things that you now have at your disposal through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Colossians 1, verse 15, you want to turn there? Colossians 1, 15. Paul says that Yeshua is the very image of the invisible God, and he is the firstborn of all creation. It's a big deal. So it seems evident to me that the entire Bible, from front to back, points and looks forward to this magnificent event that would be the catalyst of redemption of humanity and his creation. That event was the birth and the ministry, the death and the resurrection of Yeshua. The Torah cannot open up to us the inner dimensions of the letters on parchment, like the teachings and the example of Messiah can. Now, there are times where I've left the country or gone out of town and I've left Noah or some other son in charge of lawn care. Normally they do a great job, you know, and they take care of things. Actually, Noah does a better job than I do. But let me just use this, this parable, this analogy here, I guess we can say it is. If I left and I said, Noah, you're in charge of caring for the lawn, and I get back and I say, Noah, you did it all wrong. You know, there's patches of grass left, there's weeds everywhere, and he hasn't done anything, he hasn't weeded it. What would I, as a good father, do? Would I, would I, would I punish him or judge him? It, you know, maybe I didn't equip him enough. Now, I'm, I'm preparing for another trip, let's say. And I say, Noah, I'm going I'm to give you another chance. Come on out to the yard with me. Let me, let me make sure. I want to watch you. I, I want to demonstrate for you how to mow the lawn correctly. Watch me do it. Now, here's how you do the weed eater, right? Here's how you pull weeds. Okay, now that you've seen me do it, let me see you do it. Okay, now I'm going to leave on my trip. Now, if I come back from my trip and he is unsuccessful again, do I have a right then to say, okay, you dropped the ball? Yes, I do. Right? But how much more likely is he to succeed because I have demonstrated him to him my heart and my intent? And that's, in, in, in essence, the picture of Yeshua. 
Yeshua is the spirit of the Torah, we could say. He came at a time when the pollution of the Torah was at an all-time high. He stepped into man's distortion of God's love, God's love letter to Israel, and showed us how it was to be correctly done. Just take the parable of the Good Samaritan, for example. The entire purpose of this parable that Yeshua speaks, if you remember, you guys remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Hopefully you read the New Testament, right? <laughs> The, the, the purpose of the parable was to rebuke the religious leaders of that day and say to them, you have exchanged the heart and intent of God for the sake of the letters of the Torah and your status. You have engrossed yourselves in the study of Torah, but to the exclusion of the obvious acts of mercy that needed to be shown to a fellow Israelite. So Yeshua says, I'm going to take and tell you a story in which the most hated and ostracized race of the time is going to do a better job at honoring God than even the most learned and prestigious Torah teachers of the day. That is the priests and the Levites. Wow. The moral of the story, we need to worship God in both spirit and in truth, don't we? Know and abide in God's law but allow the Holy Spirit to teach you the inner dimensions and the heart of each of his commands as you do them. Know that God is not above using a Samaritan or someone you hate to embarrass you in your self-righteousness if he needs to. So in closing, I'm not looking to pull an Andy Stanley and unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. (laughs) God forbid. I'm just attesting to the fact that the writers of the New Testament, and especially Hebrews, believed that the revelation of God's will through the advent of Yeshua was so supreme over any other revelation man had ever experienced up until that point, that if I had to pick, I'd pick the part of my Bible that describes this advent and this revelation. Now, this is an important question to ask. I I think, why do I just throw this question out there? Isn't it kind of divisive? No, it's not. It's an important question to ask. Because I stand here in front of a room full of Messianic people. I wouldn't ask this question in front of a, you know, Sunday school class at Ridgecrest Baptist Church. They don't have a problem with, well, maybe they do, I don't know. In a room full of Messianic people, we have a unique problem. A room full of Messianic people, you correctly look at the entire Bible and you obey what can be obeyed. I hope at least. Why? Because this question is important because in our circles... We so often allow the pendulum of our faith to swing too far to the front of our Bibles and forgetting who it was that initially drew and brought us to the Bible. Sadly, and I've seen it firsthand, sadly, there are kids in the room who, kids right here today, who at one point could read biblical Hebrew just about fluently, but struggled with being able to articulate and name off the gifts of the Spirit found in Galatians chapter 5. We have kids growing up in our congregation who, at one point, could recite the entirety of the Shema, the Amidah, the Mourner's Kaddish, and many other beautiful prayers in Hebrew, and do it so smoothly. But we're a little fuzzy on who John the Baptist was and what he did. Now, for some of you older folks who grew up attending Sunday school at your church for, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 years, this isn't a problem for you. You've learned all these stories all your life. And you could probably quote the New Testament front to back, no problem. And and you maybe desire to learn more 
and hear more taught on the Torah or the prophets because that was almost withheld from you. It was a part of your diet that was withheld for so many years. But as a shepherd of this flock, it's important I look at the dietary needs and the ailments of everyone present and to do my best to lead them to a pasture that will fit those needs and cure those ailments. Sometimes it looks more like force feeding and unsavory medicine down a throat. (laughs) And other times it can be more self-led. But if I see that our youth and our children are not hearing or being taught either here or at home the messages and the stories of the gospel, then we will quickly stop and we will reassess. So let's maintain balance. Let's stand firmly on the whole word of God and not lose focus on the fact that Yeshua is our cornerstone. He brought us to the dance, right? Let's dance with him. Without him, we would still be lost and without hope. Now let's pray for our Jewish world to see the gospel for what it is. And let's pray for our Christian world to see the from their Bibles for what it is. Some additional reasons before I wrap up this question that I would pick this part of my Bible, if I had to pick, are the following. There's a description of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's not evident in the Hebrew Bible. It's not described in great detail. Also, the New Testament describes the formula for baptizing both in water and in spirit. The New Testament details the many qualifying miracles of Messiah, of Yeshua, that he performed to prove that he was Messiah. The New Testament offers qualifications and criteria for the appointment of leaders within the local assembly. It describes in great detail how the local assembly is to be led and to be governed. The New Testament contains more detailed accounts of the return of Messiah, the resurrection of the dead, and his coming kingdom. The New Testament gives me great hope. Let me pray and then we'll do a time of Q&A. Abba, I thank you for this time and we could study your word and parse it out. Father, I pray that you would just ignite a fire in us, that we would go home and continue our study, continue our searching out your heart. Father, may you give us your Holy Spirit fresh and anew today to teach us and conform us, convict us and comfort us. We thank you and praise you in Yeshua's mighty name. Amen. Amen. Well, guys, we have a few minutes. Does anybody have any follow-up? I know you had one. Yeah, go for it. Oh, okay. Did you forget? Suzanne, you got a question or comment? Yeah. What my mind went to was kind of similar to that, and that was the Bible codes that were so popular yeah. a few years ago. Right, right. And also the Matria. Yeah. And what are your thoughts on that, and is that relevant? Yeah, yeah. I think it was uh, Michael Dresnan who wrote the Bible codes. He actually wrote two books, and they're up in our library. Or other people that jumped on the bandwagon. Yeah. Um, people have tested the Bible code theory out using uh, books like Moby Dick, for instance, and they've actually they've actually found the Bible code in those books. Um, now we have an option there. We have a couple options: either the Bible code theory is false, or God has also revealed some things about the future in the book Moby Dick, or it just is, co- <laughs> or it's just coincidence that that you can take letters and you can do that. I tend to lean towards the latter that it is it is coincidental that those letters do those things. Um, but I, I could be corrected. Now, gematria, the same thing. It's like um, there, are, there are people that can take it and go way out in left field 
and uh, and can create a whole dogma on gematria. And for those who don't know what gematria is, like you can say that um, you know, like the word Yeshua, uh, Yeshua, in Hebrew. That's Yeshua's name in Hebrew. That that every letter has a number ascribed to it, and you can add those numbers up, and you can find meaning, and you can connect them with other words that have the same. Like the word Nachash in Hebrew is serpent, and it has the gematri- uh, has a numerical value of like three hundred sixty-five, and the word Mashiach has the same numerical value, and maybe they're connected. Like Mashiach comes to defeat the Nachash, the serpent. So is there is there interesting aspects to it? Absolutely. Do I do I hang my faith on it? Absolutely not. Um, it is interesting when I find things that are like beyond uh, that, that, that are clearly not coincidental. I like to I like to dabble in those things, but um, I don't make that a, a forefront of what I teach and believe if that answers your question. So, yeah, good question, though. OK. have a tendency of thinking we know everything? Yeah. Then we like to act on that. Yeah, we do. Screw a whole lot of things up in the process. Absolutely. And that's why a lot of that information is a privilege to most of us because that's essentially putting a grenade in a child's hand and saying, be safe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, with, with yeah, sometimes you people see people come into our congregation and they're like in a searching, 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 asking, 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 sponge, 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 soak it all up phase. And that's a really exciting phase to be in. But um, where you run into the problems is your, your level of searching and, and, and seeking out and sponging and soaking everything up has to be commensurate with your level of discernment. And if it isn't, bad things happen and you absorb some toxic stuff into your, into your theology. So you have to be very careful and very discerning. So, yeah, good point. And, uh, uh, I guess uh, a thing that you know, just kind of got laid on me to prove is if you ever have a question or a doubt about how powerful words are, mm-hmm. With rice? With rice. Oh, okay, interesting. And you can speak peace and love into another jar, and you will have a physical difference as to what will happen to them. Interesting. I should try that. My family's out of town right now, so that'd be a good time to try that at home. And, yeah. Um, oh, with plants. Interesting. <laughs> now everyone's going to think of us as, are they the congregation that talks to rice? <laughs> All right, we're going to go um, Marcus and Anthony. What you got, Marcus? Mm-hmm. Um, I was looking at another translation that said end of the law and I could see how that could get really muddled right. but I read it as conclusion of the written word is Messiah as in like once you reach the conclusion reach Messiah hmm. yeah, I, yeah what he's trying to say Paul is trying to say there is like that the Torah is the tutor which should lead you to Messiah and if you're really studying the Torah objectively and you don't know the Messiah, Paul is saying that the objective study of the Torah should lead you there. It's the telos to Messiah. That he is the goal of that. Just like, you know, when I run marathons, it's like, I, that, I don't think about anything other than I visualize myself when I get really, really worn out, 
crossing that finish line. That's the goal, all right? And I picture, I actually visualize uh, my family standing there uh, and, and that helps give me motivation when I'm feeling really, really worn out. So yeah, it's a really good point. We'll go to Anthony, and I think Kirk had a question. So Anthony? You said you had a bonus question. Yeah, no, the bonus question, oh yeah, I didn't answer it, did I? Thank you. The, the book that I would choose, if I had to only choose one book of the Bible, would be the book of Matthew. I stole that from, uh, who was it that said that? Jonathan, yeah, I got to thinking about his answer, and I was like, yeah. Why the book of Matthew? Because it's like the entire Bible in one book. You have in there genealogy from Adam on down to Yeshua. You have the birth of Yeshua. You have the life, the death, burial, resurrection of Yeshua, and all the miracles in between. And then you have prophecies of the end time and a second coming in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. In everything you need to know about law, the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, a lot of good stuff in the book of Matthew. Not everything, obviously, but uh, if I had only choose one book that I, like, I was, if a prison guard was like, choose one book, which will it be? I'd go with the book of Matthew. So, yeah, that's just, now, I don't, you can choose a different one. Yeah. You had to choose one from the Old Testament. Oh, wow. <laughs> I didn't think about that one. <laughs> I was going to say Deuteronomy, just right off the top of my head, but I'm not sure. Yeah, that's that's good. I really like Deuteronomy. Devarim. All right, is that your, to answer your question? So, okay. Uh, I saw another question. Where was it at? Uh, I think Kirk had one. Did you have one, Kirk? Yeah, it was off of what she said and he said uh, about the numbers. The mm-hmm. Gematria. Yeah. Yeah. Very much be very careful that it doesn't take you. Right. I was taught in, in college by a jazz musician to do the number system. Mm-hmm. You, you should be able to sit down and cheer and orchestrate by numbers. You know, some of the scientific people are like, everything's numbers, everything's numbers. But what I have found is when I've had a writer's block or not sure, you know, um, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When it's like, and I go back and I look at the words with the, you know, given the equivalent symbols. And oh, okay, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it has opened up some chords that I was looking for that hmm. I didn't know kind of fit. that would fit there. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't take it into, you know, all that Kabbalah, I think. Yeah, yeah, Kabbalah utilizes that a lot, yeah. Yeah, I would... would It's mysticism. Yeah, I would not do that. But music is based on numbers. Yeah. I mean, the whole universe is based on numbers, you know, it's it's true, but... uh, Yeah, I think uh, the Lord told me, uh, hey, until you master the fruits of the Spirit, don't go on to Kamatria, so... (laughs) Still working on those fruits of the Spirit, man. We're tough. Especially, especially uh, when Chick Fil A is closed on Sundays. <laughs> All right, I saw. Let's take one more question, maybe from someone who hasn't asked one yet. Let's go with Shannon, and then guys, I'll be here at the end of service. If you have other questions, come up and see me, okay? Shannon. Yeah. Mm. And so the, um, the first verse that popped up is actually in, the, in Psalms, Psalms 
because we just have these little three-pound brains that he blessed us with, right? It's like we're the worm trying to comprehend the man. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I just, in terms of personal prayer, I, I tend to pray like Yeshua prayed. Um, you know, like he, he taught his disciples how to pray. That is opening with Father, um, addressing him as Abba, uh, Father. Um, and if I, I often will pray, can you... Uh, renew in me a right spirit can you can you renew in me your holy spirit um and we can get into a whole other teaching on the role of the holy spirit in life of a believer i think i've done that in the past but uh yeah i think i think uh we we vastly underestimate the role of the holy spirit in the life of a believer and equipping us to do the good work that we're called to do uh and and you might think when i say good work you might think like following commandments but yeah that's part of it but also just uh speaking into people's lives or doing things that or orchestrated for at a certain time, at a certain point in, in time, for us to do that at that time, um, and and being being uh, the the catalyst of someone's salvation because of that, I guess. So, yeah, it's really good. So, yeah, maybe you could uh, teach us about the intimacy of God. Something. You're gonna go home and take a nap, aren't you, today? But all right, guys, thank you so much for your questions. Again, I'll be here if you have any other questions and follow up questions. And this is concludes our uh, our question and answer time for uh, the year. And I uh, hope they were some, hope they, maybe you guys had questions about them that you just, you know, answered those questions that you had in your mind. So I thank you for your attention. I think we're going to do Kiddush maybe.